Well, please be seated. We're in Psalm 35, obviously, and, and uh, as many of you know, we're continuing in the Psalter until we get to chapter 41, which will conclude book one of the Psalter, and then we're going to end our study through the Psalter. And just to give you a heads up, we're going to shift back into the New Testament uh, after Psalm 41, and we'll be studying the book of Colossians together. So we're excited about that and looking forward to that next chapter, or I guess that's not a chapter, but that next season uh, in God's Word together at Apostles Church. So that'll be coming up in about a month and a half. But Psalm 35, our text for today is, as you see there, a Psalm of David. That's all we get as a title. We don't get any historical information about where this Psalm is located in David's life. Um, And so we can just take it more as a general Psalm for us that can be applied to many seasons of life. The issue at hand in Psalm 35 appears to be that David, the psalmist, is here suffering unjustly. There are people that are working against him, people that are trying to bring harm to him, and this is key, for no fault of his own. David has not instigated their violence. David has not done something that has brought about their hatred and their vindictiveness. But nonetheless, they oppose him and they hate him and they are coming after him. In verse 19, he speaks of his foes who hate me without cause. They hate him without cause. And in verse 12, he says that they repay me evil for good. So David is living righteously. David is doing good and yet they are repaying him evil for what he is doing. What do you call it when someone hates you without cause. When you're living a righteous and godly life and yet people are hell-bent on destroying you. One thing you can call that is persecution. David, this man of God, is here being persecuted by unrighteous people. But this should be no surprise to us. This is what godly people can expect. Jesus, our Lord and Savior, was himself persecuted by ungodly and unrighteous people. And Paul writes to Timothy in 2 Timothy 3.12 that all who desire to live a godly life in Christ Jesus will be persecuted. So this is a reality for those who live a godly life. Those who seek to be righteous and seek to glorify God and live the way that he wants us to live in this world. You're going to have people who persecute you. There's a very basic reason for this. Jesus talks about this in John chapter 3 when Jesus explains that darkness hates the light. Darkness hates the light. And so for any of us who allow the light of Jesus to shine through our life, there will be people opposed to us. And this will only happen more and more as Christianity continues to come into the crosshairs of society. Just this past week, I saw James Madison University in the news over their campus training, which, like so much of our current corporate and university training, labels Christians as oppressors. Think about that. Oppressors. Oppressors are evil. Somebody who is an oppressor is somebody who is morally in the wrong. They are perpetuating evil. And Christians are being labeled and categorized as oppressors. And when you place whole groups of people 
in a category labeled evil, history teaches us that there really is no limit to what kinds of persecution is justifiable against those evil people. Ideologically, Christianity and culture are drifting further and further apart. And as that continues, the views of Christians will generate more and more opposition. Just two weeks ago, Carl Truman, who is a respected historian and a respected theologian, was lecturing at the Sacramento Gospel Conference when the live stream on YouTube was cut off for content violation. According to an opinion piece in the Wall Street Journal, and I quote, nothing in Mr. Truman's talks encouraged hatred, vulgarity, or violence. On the contrary, he offered a thoughtful analysis of American cultural attitudes towards sex through the lens of classic Christian thought, citing sources from Freud to the philosophers Rousseau and Charles Taylor, end quote. The article's title captures a growing sentiment among many Christian voices in our country. The title of the article in the Wall Street Journal was this, Social Media's Threat to Religious Freedom. Classic Christian viewpoints on everything from sex to gender to morality to meaning to purpose and to truth itself are at odds with our ever-increasing secular culture. But rather than being laughed at and dismissed or perhaps passionately debated against by those who don't share our worldview, there's a growing sentiment in our culture that Christians ought to be silenced, or perhaps even worse. Now, I know for some of us, in light of the recent events in the world, me talking about persecution in America can feel very overblown, like I'm being overly dramatic. I mean, for crying out loud, there are Christians right now in Afghanistan who are being physically and literally hunted down by the Taliban. They are suffering real persecution. And so let me say this, I'm not trying to equate what's going on in the modern West with what Christians are facing in other places around the world. But what I am trying to do is point to a trajectory that we're on in the West, a trajectory where the worldview and the beliefs and the value systems that are embodied by followers of Jesus are in the crosshairs of an increasingly secular culture. And the net result of that is going to be an intensifying of opposition from culture to those who name the name of Jesus and toward those who want to faithfully follow Jesus. It's going to continue. It will happen more and more. And so an important question for us, if we desire to be faithful to King Jesus, is what do we do when other people hate us without cause? What do we do? How do we respond? How do we live? And specifically in Psalm 35, how do we pray when other people are repaying good with evil? When other people are seeking our demise because we're living a righteous life? Well, Psalm 35 can help us find an answer this morning. The title of this sermon is A Prayer for the Persecuted. A Prayer for, for the Persecuted. Now, this is a long psalm, and I promise we'll work through each of the sections relatively quickly today, because it's a long psalm. It's 28 verses. Uh, Charles Spurgeon breaks this psalm into three parts, which I think is very helpful. 
So three sections, and each of these sections you're going to notice have a request to God, a complaint before God, and then praise to God. And the three sections are verses 1 through 10, 11 through 18, and then 19 until the end. It's almost as if there are three repetitive prayers in Psalm 35. David going to the Lord asking for deliverance once and then twice and then a third time. And this reminds us of the practice of our own Lord on the night when he faced his greatest persecution in the Garden of Gethsemane. And our Lord prayed this same prayer for deliverance three times, saying, Father, if it is possible, let this cup pass. So let's look at section one. Again, this is verses one through 10. David begins this great prayer with his request. Beginning in verse one, he says, Contend, O Lord, with those who contend with me. Fight against those who fight against me. Take hold of shield and buckler and rise up for my help. Draw the spear and javelin against my pursuers. Say to my soul, I am your salvation. Let them be put to shame and dishonor who seek after my life. Let them be turned back and disappointed who devise evil against me. Let them be like chaff before the wind with the angel of the Lord driving them away. Let their way be dark and slippery with the angel of the Lord pursuing them. And then drop down to verse 8. Let destruction come upon him when he does not know it. And let the net that he hid ensnare him. Let him fall into it to his destruction. Simply put, David's request is, Lord, deliver me from these workers of evil. Deliver me from their devious plans against me. David knows that the evil and the darkness that he faces in the world from other people is no match for the power of his God. David comes to the Lord and he calls on God to fight his battles for him. He asks the Lord to rise up, to oppose, to directly contend with these people who are hellbent on his destruction. He wants God to fight this battle. He wants God to deliver him. He says, argue my case, defeat my enemies, be my salvation entirely, Lord. In verse five, he says that he wants them to be like the chaff that the wind drives away. The chaff being sort of the outer shell of the grain. That once they would break that shell off, the chaff would be blown away on a threshing floor by a gentle breeze, like this breeze right now would just push the chaff away. But I love what David says here. He wants, he wants the angel of the Lord, perhaps Jesus himself, to be like the wind that pushes the chaff away. So really he's asking God to be the one that just drives these people away who are pursuing him. And he wants in verse six to be, the, the, he wants the Lord to be the one that pursues them and drives them away. I mentioned last week, this language, angel of the Lord, which you should know this, it's only used twice in the Psalter. It's in Psalm 34 and Psalm 35, these back-to-back Psalms. It's the only place that the Psalter talks about the angel of the Lord. But the angel of the Lord is talked about in other places in the Old Testament. And many scholars think that this is a reference to Christ in the Old Testament, a Christophany. That Jesus, before he was ever born of the Virgin Mary, that he came and he would minister to God's people. 
And so David is calling on the angel of the Lord who we ultimately know would be Christ himself to take care of his pursuers. And family, we too can go to Christ and we can ask him to contend for us and to fight our battles. One of the encouraging things for Christians over the centuries when facing persecution is the reality that Jesus takes the persecution of his people personally. In fact, remember when Jesus met Saul of Tarsus on the road to Damascus and he knocked Saul off of his horse because Saul was going to Damascus to persecute Christians. The words of Jesus to Saul were this, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? In other words, the persecution of Christ's people was tantamount to persecuting Jesus himself. He took it personally. And Jesus stopped Saul from being a persecutor of the church and converted him and made him the greatest evangelist of the church. And so we have all the confidence in the world that when people oppose the godly, when they persecute the godly, that Christ sees it. And Christ is aware and Christ stands up for his people. David's request is now followed by his reason in the form of a complaint in verse 7. He says in verse 7, For without cause they hid their net for me. Without cause they dug a pit for my life. Notice that in verse 7, on two, in two places, he uses the expression, without cause. David's pointing to the fact that he was innocent David's pointing to the fact that he did nothing to instigate this sort of a response. He did nothing to bring this on. He was living righteously and yet evil people persecuted him. Now it's important to point out that persecution is not persecution unless you're living righteously. Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount, Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness sake. Okay, sometimes Christians claim to be persecuted, not for being righteous, but for being annoying. God, I'm being persecuted right now, and it's because I'm living for righteousness sake. No, it's just because you're being annoying to people. Christians who perhaps in the workplace, everybody they work with is a non-Christian. Their boss is a non-Christian. And yet they constantly preach at their coworkers and preach at their coworkers and pull their coworkers away and distract them from doing their work and get on the nerves of their boss because they're like, hey, I need everybody on task. And you keep pulling people away and talking about this Jesus thing. And then the Christian will say, well, I'm being persecuted at work for sharing my faith. No, you're, you're just being persecuted because you're being annoying. You're being annoying. There's a time and a place to share your faith with your coworkers, but you don't distract them from their work and take away from the productivity that their boss is requiring. Other times, Christians claim to be getting persecuted, not for being righteous, but simply for being rude. Judging other people, being harsh with other people, acting like you're better than other people, being overly judgmental or callous toward other people. And Christians will say, I'm being persecuted because I'm so godly. No, you're, you're being persecuted because you're a jerk. And there's a big, big difference. Jesus is very clear that we should be as Christians 
persecuted. We should be opposed because of our righteousness, because we are embodying the life and the ethic of Jesus. That the way that we're living reflects the very life of Christ. David could only expect that God would fight his battles because he knew he was living righteously toward these other people. And so as Christians, we must pursue holiness. As Christians, we must live righteous lives. We must be people whose lives are marked by the fruit of the Spirit. People who are, who are marked by love and joy and peace and patience and kindness toward others and faithfulness, and gentleness, and self-control. Living lives like, lives like that, where our lives, again, look like the life of Christ, that our lives are marked by true godliness, by true goodness, by true righteousness. As Christians, our speech must be full of grace and truth. And some Christians, again, are just, it's all about truth and they're harsh and they're calloused and they're not tactful with people. Our speech must be marked by grace and truth. And then if we're living this way, when persecution comes, we can know that it is for righteousness sake and we can trust that God will deliver us. Well, this leads now to praise in verses 9 and 10. David has brought his request and his complaint before the Lord. And then he says in verse 9, Then my soul will rejoice in the Lord, exulting in his salvation. All my bones shall say, O Lord, who is like you, delivering the poor from him who is too strong for him, the poor and needy from him who robs him. He says, then. When is he talking about? Well, when the Lord delivers him, then he will rejoice in the Lord. This will be David's response. God, as you see me through this great trial, praise will be on my lips. I'm going to thank you. I'm going to worship you because of what you have done. The story of Jesus healing the 10 lepers in Luke's gospel teaches us what a great sin ingratitude is. Remember, Jesus is greeted by these 10 lepers who are completely ostracized from society because of their disease. And they see Jesus and they call out for mercy. And Jesus says, go and show yourself to the priests, which they would have understood as go and demonstrate your healing because the priests were sort of the medical examiners of the day who would examine a person and say, oh my gosh, you no longer have leprosy. You can be reintegrated into society. So they want healing. And Jesus says, go show yourself to the priest. And all 10 of them walk off. And on the way, the scriptures say, all 10 of them are healed. And yet one of them, only one of them, comes back to the Lord to say thank you. And Jesus responds by affirming his faith and his gratitude and simultaneously condemning the other nine. When Jesus says, where are the other nine? Were there not ten of you who he healed? Section two is verses 11 through 18. And he works back through, again, these same three themes. Number one, he begins with his complaint again, starting in verse 11. David says here, malicious witnesses rise up. They ask me of things that I do not know. They repay me evil for good. My soul is bereft. 
But I, when they were sick, I wore sackcloth. I afflicted myself with fasting. I prayed with head bowed on my chest. I went about as though I grieved for my friend or my brother. As one who laments his mother, I bowed down in mourning. But at my stumbling, they rejoiced and gathered. They gathered together against me. Wretches whom I did not know tore at me without ceasing like profane mockers at a feast. They gnash at me with their teeth. How long, O Lord, will you look on? David here complains again to the Lord. He's looking at this situation. He recognizes that it's not right. It's unfair. He recognizes how treacherous it is. And he calls out to the Lord in complaint. He says that these these people, they're malicious witnesses. They're evil witnesses. They're false witnesses. They're being deceptive. They're accusing him of things that he knew nothing about in verse 11. In other words, they're blaming him for things that he had no part in. They're just making up accusations. Also in verses 15 and 16, and maybe this is really part of the deep source of pain here is that these people actually rejoiced at his own calamity. When he stumbled, when hardship fell on David, they were rejoicing. They, they took pleasure in his pain. He says they even gathered together against him. They formed a coalition against this godly man. But for sure, worst of all is found in verse 12, where they repay me evil for good. What was the good that David had performed? Well, Look at him in contrast to them. When these same people were sick, David didn't rejoice. No, rather than rejoicing in their sickness, he prayed for them, he fasted for them, and he grieved over their suffering. In fact, he even uses the language of family, mother and brother. He treated them like family members. He genuinely wanted their good. He wanted to see them recover and get well. And he prayed toward that end. And so their treachery left him bereaved in verse 12. This is why he cries out in lament in verse 17. How long, O Lord, will you look on? One commentator used the example of the good Samaritan to illustrate how treacherous this actually was. Remember in the good Samaritan, this man goes down the road to, from Jericho to Jerusalem. And he's, he's uh, assaulted by robbers who beat him and leave him on the roadside for dead. And a priest goes by and ignores the man in pain. A Levite goes by, ignores the man in pain. And finally, a Samaritan goes by and he comes and he takes this man and he bandages up his wounds and he takes care of him and he puts him on his own animal and he takes him down to the city and he checks him into the inn and he pays his bills and he tells the innkeeper, if there's any further uh, expenses required to take care of this man, then I'll repay you when I come back through. So this Samaritan does all of this stuff for this man, right? And takes care of this man who is in peril. And the commentator says, it would be as if the Samaritan at a later point is now himself traveling down the road. And he falls victim to robbers who beat him and leave him to, to die. And as he looks up, he finds that it's the man that he had rescued who has become his chief tormentor, who's the leader of the pack. I mean, how treacherous would that be? I helped you. I saved your life. How could you turn against me like this? It's a deep treachery. How this must have broken David's heart to experience this. 
These people he just sought, he sought good for. He loved these people. He sought to be a blessing for these people. And it's those people who now come against him and try to destroy him. Must have broken his heart. This reminds me, though, of all of our story. Isn't this the story of all of us toward God? Every human being toward God? I mean, stop and think about it. There has never been a person who has lived on this earth who ever experienced anything but goodness from God. God created us and gave us life. Every good thing that every single person have is a gift of grace that comes down from God. The fact that you have breath in your lungs, that you have the capacity to earn a living and put food into your body, the fact that you have the family members that you have, the friends that you have, everything that every person has ever received is a gift of grace. They didn't deserve it. And so we've all only ever received good from God, and yet every single person has been treacherous against the goodness of God. Every single person has looked at the God who has given us everything, even the God who has given us his law, so that we as human beings could live at peace with each other, so that we as human beings could live with human flourishing. God's given all of that to us, and every single human being has said, I'm going to rebel against you. I'm going to reject you. I'm going to turn my back against you. I'm going to sneer at you. I'm going to raise my fist to heaven. And how much that must grieve the the heart of the father. That all he's done is extend goodness and goodness and goodness. And we repay him with treachery. And yet the marvel of it all is that rather than calling for our destruction as David does for his treacherous enemies. And like all of us most likely would. Here's what we read about God's response. While we were enemies... We were reconciled to God by the death of his son, Romans 5.10. I mean, think about that. In response to your treachery, God sends his son. He just gives more and more. He's just extending more goodness and more grace to demonstrate the depth of his love. And the extent of his patience and his loving kindness toward his creation. And it's because of that that any of our hearts are ever opened up to want to start loving God the way that he deserves to be loved. Well, David in verse 17 gets back to request again. He's going to pray a prayer. He's going to ask for something. It's in the second part of verse 17. He says, rescue me from their destruction my precious life from the lions. So for the second time, David asks for rescue. God, save me, deliver me from the lions, from these enemies who are far too powerful for me. If you don't help me, if you don't deliver me, I'm gone. There's nothing I can do. Now underneath all persecution is the true enemy of our souls, Satan himself, who not coincidentally, is also pictured as a lion in the scriptures. In 1 Peter 5, 8, we read, Be sober-minded, be watchful. Your adversary, the devil, prowls around like a roaring lion, seeking someone to devour. Now, that verse is interesting because if you just isolate it and, and look at it like that, it almost looks like 
the scriptures are telling us, you've got to fight against him. You've got to be sober-minded. You've got to be watchful. And of course, we do have a role to play, but it almost sounds like you've got to fight against this powerful lion yourself, but that's not true. In fact, the verse right in front of it, verse 7 of 1 Peter chapter 5, tells us to cast all our anxieties on God because he cares for us. And the verses after that come right back to the idea that it is God who fights for us, who delivers us. And so we too can request that God save us and deliver us from our great enemy. Well, this leads to the second time that David moves into praise again in verse 18. He says, I will thank you in the great congregation, in the mighty throng, I will praise you. Now, this is interesting because David's promise of praise now moves into another dimension. First, back in verses 9 and 10, David had promised the Lord, hey, if you deliver me, I am going to personally praise you. But now, David's praise is going to go public. Now he's saying, let me shift this into another gear, Lord. When you deliver me, if you deliver me, I am going to praise you. I'm going to thank you in the congregation among all of my brothers and sisters. I'm going to be a witness and I'm going to testify to your goodness and your mercy and your deliverance in my life. So he shifts his praise into another dimension here. His worship, his praise will be corporate in nature. Well, verse 19 now moves us into section three in this psalm, David's third trip around the sun, so to speak. And he's going to begin again with complaint starting in verse 19. Let not those rejoice over me who are wrongfully my foes, and let not those wink the eye who hate me without cause. For they do not speak peace, but against those who are quiet in the land, they devise words of deceit. They open wide their mouths against me. They say, aha, aha, our eyes have seen it. Now, I know that verse 19 is technically part of David's request, right? He's requesting something, let not those rejoice over me. But I'm, I'm lumping it in with the complaint section because I want to highlight David's innocence again in all of this, because that's the root of his complaint, is that, that these people have this animosity against me for no reason of, of, of my own doing. I haven't caused this. So look in verse 19 again. He says that they are wrongfully his foes. And then even more significantly, they hate me without cause. Now verse 19 in that expression there, they hate me without cause, is quoted directly by our Savior in John chapter 15. Jesus in the upper room on the night that he would be betrayed says this in John 15 verse 25 as his own persecutors are closing in. Jesus says, but the word that is written in their law must be fulfilled. And then he quotes Psalm 35, 19. They hated me without a cause. So Jesus there on the night of his betrayal looks at the persecution of righteous David as a prototype for his own persecution at the hands of unrighteous people. And what was true of Jesus will be true of all of Jesus's followers. In fact, only a few verses earlier in John 15, he said as much. Back in verse 18, Jesus said this, If the world hates you, know that it has hated me before it hated you. 
So one of the things that every Christian has got to get firmly fixed in their head is that you cannot avoid all persecution. You can't be so righteous that everyone loves you. And I think that's what some Christians hope for, that I can just treat everyone so well. I can just be so loving. I can just be so godly that everyone will want to be my friend. Everyone will treat me right. Jesus was perfectly righteous and they killed him. So it can't happen that way. In fact, let me put it differently. And this might be a paradigm shift for some of you. It is actually your righteousness that causes many people to hate you. That is actually what's underneath it. That's the source of it. It is righteousness that they hate. So if we're living more and more righteously, that's not a recipe for avoiding persecution. That's actually just going to bring you into greater and greater conflict with people who hate righteousness and people who do not love God. They do not love the son of God. They do not love the word of God. Derek Kidner, Old Testament scholar, said this, and I thought it was so insightful. He said, hatred without a cause is a basic response of evil towards good. Hatred without a cause is a basic response of evil towards good. Again, Jesus put it this way in John chapter 3, that darkness does not like the light. Darkness hates the light. And so as we seek to live like Christ, as we seek to embody the ethics of God's kingdom and the righteous standards of God's kingdom, those very things will bring you into conflict with those who don't follow Jesus. And this is David's experience. David's adversaries don't speak peace, which we learned last week. The righteous are supposed to seek. He says their speech is deceptive. They lie and say, our eyes have seen it when they saw no such thing in David. And so this brings us to David's third and final request of God. In verse 22, David, he says, You have seen, O Lord, be not silent. O Lord, be not far from me. Awake and rouse yourself for my vindication, for my cause, my God, and my Lord. Vindicate me, O Lord, my God, according to your righteousness, and let them not Rejoice over me. David calls once more on God to intervene. Now, David knows that God sees and is aware of everything that's happening to him. He knows that God is omniscient. He says, you have seen, O Lord. Even back in verse 17, he asks the question, how long, O Lord, will you look on? So David's aware. God sees everything that's happening. So God, you see this, you're omniscient. None of this is escaping your attention. And David also knows that at any moment, God could arouse himself, God could rise up and God could deliver him. God has that power. God is omnipotent. God could change the situation in an instant. And I love that. That that is one of my strongest encouragements in my own prayer life, especially in times of crisis. That God has the power at any moment, perhaps that moment of prayer, when I'm asking God, God, would you do this? 
the thought that at that moment, that could be the turning point that God steps up and acts and changes the circumstances gives me such hope in times of prayer. Even as we've been praying for my father-in-law and our family, one of our consistent prayers is, Lord, we pray that right now, this would be the turning point that, Lord, you would step in and that you would change his circumstances and begin to bring him on the road to recovery. And God can do that. God can arouse himself. God can stand up right now and do something in our moments of crisis. So David knows God is omniscient and he's aware. God is omnipotent and he's powerful. And David also knows that God is righteous. He says that. And so he knows that God fights for the innocent, that he vindicates those who are innocent. Because of all of this about God, David has all the confidence in the world to come to God in prayer, leaning into God's character. And what this vindication will look like is spelled out in all of these statements that begin with let them, let them. There's four of them. But here's the summary. All four of them basically mean this. Let them lose. That's, that's what he's saying. Don't let them win over me, Lord. Just let them lose. Defeat these people, Lord. And in contrast, let us, David says, or let those who delight in my righteousness shout for joy and be glad. Not everybody in the land hated David. There were plenty of people who were on his side. There were plenty of people who acknowledged his righteousness and his heart for God. And they themselves shared that heart for God and they were in his corner. And David's saying, deliver me from the treacherous people in the land and let all of us who love you, Lord. Let all of us who are called by your name be glad and shout for joy. David asks God that their attacks against him would amount to nothing. That ultimately they would be put to shame forever raising a hand or raising a false word against one of God's children. And so we pray for those who persecute us, that their attacks would amount to nothing. But our prayers must go even further. Jesus, our Lord, taught us in Matthew 5, 44 to pray even further. Jesus says, but I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Similarly, Paul says in Romans 12, 14, bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Now we're getting into tough waters, choppy waters. Now we're getting into the really hard stuff about our faith. Pray for those who persecute us. Bless those who persecute us. What is that? How, how, how should we do that? What does that look like? Well, there's much to be said about this. That's what preachers say when they've run out of what to say about this. Oh, there's so much to be said about this. I can preach a whole sermon on this. Well, there really is. There's so much to be said about this. And to be honest with you, if we were in Romans, I would unpack this at length. But I just want to say this for us today because we're out of time. At the very least, as followers of Jesus Christ, what this means is, yes, we can pray that God foils their plans. We can pray that God stays their hand. But at the very least, as followers of Jesus Christ, we are praying for their salvation. We are saying, God, we believe that even the Taliban can be saved, that people who are right now murdering and killing and terrorizing innocent people, people who are hunting down and trying to kill Christians in your name. We believe that you 
could intervene right now, that you're not blind to what's going on, and that you're powerful enough, you're mighty enough that you could save them right now and turn them to Jesus Christ, just like Saul of Tarsus. And God, we would love to see that happen. If there's so much hatred in your heart for the persecutors of the church, that you would hate to see them come to Christ and become our brothers and sisters and spend eternity in heaven, you've got to dwell more on the gospel. You've got to dwell more on the fact that you don't deserve God's grace any more than they do. None of us deserve it. The fact that any of us become children of God is a miracle of sheer grace. And but for the grace of God, there's no limit to the evil that we might be willing to commit if the circumstances were just right. Or if you were raised in a particular home with a particular worldview and belief system about what was right and what was wrong. The gospel makes us a humble people. It makes us an open people. It makes us a generous people. It makes us a forgiving people. And I'm not pretending that that's easy. But I have to tell you on the authority of God's word that it's right. And that it's true. And that it's God's heart. And if we want to be like Christ, and if we want to share the heart of God, we've got to get to a place where we can learn to turn our hearts even toward our enemies and say, Lord, save them. And when you do, allow them to start enjoying the blessings that come from walking with God. Verse 28, David's third time talking about praise. He says this at the end of this psalm, after he's asking God to deliver him, he says, then my tongue shall tell of your righteousness and of your praise all the day long. Once again, David's promise of praise moves into another dimension. That first time in verses 9 and 10, he said, I personally will praise you if you save me. And then over in verse 18, he said, I will praise you publicly and corporately. And now in verse 28, he shifts it into another place and he says, I'm going to praise you all day long. Your praise will continually be on my lips. I'm not going to stop. I'm not going to relent. If you deliver me and you save me from this great trial, Lord, I will never cease to offer praise to you. And I love this because David ends Psalm 35 with a commitment to fulfilling the very purpose that God created him for. God created us to worship and God has us here on this earth to witness and to let other people know about who he is and about the amazing grace that he offers to give brand new life and reconciliation and forgiveness to people who do not deserve it, to people who are actually right now God's enemies. We exist to tell them, listen, God will forgive you. And God takes enemies and makes them children and invites them into his family. And so David is in this place now where he ends and he says, my heart, Lord, as you deliver me from this trial is to worship and to witness forevermore. And ultimately, when we think about the idea of persecution, this is what we want deliverance from our persecutors for. We want deliverance 
from our persecutors, not so that we can get back to a comfy life of leisure. Oh Lord, if you just get us back to the golden age in America where everything, everybody just thought like we did and everybody supported Christians, I could just have a comfy life and everything could be awesome. So deliver us from this hour, Lord. Bring us back to a place where I can be comfortable. Nor is it so that we can have more time to build our reputation. Lord, I got to make my mark on this earth. And if you allow me to be persecuted and destroyed now, I'm not going to, it's not about any of that kind of stuff. God, if you deliver me from this hour of persecution, again, Christians in Afghanistan, right now, Lord, if you deliver me from this hour of persecution and you extend my life here on earth, I'm going to take that as an opportunity to say, you've given me a longer window to worship and to witness, to live for your name and your fame and your glory and to reach out to as many people as I possibly can because the time is short and Christ is coming and eternity hangs in the balance. And at the end of the day, nothing else ultimately matters. It doesn't. And so this is why we want deliverance. Because listen, if God doesn't deliver you and you perish in that persecution, then like Paul, you say to live is Christ and to die is gain. The only people that are sad are your family members who aren't there with you yet. You're not going to die and get to heaven and go, I wish I could go back. You're going to get there and say, this is gain. This is, this is great. This is what it's all ultimately about. And so if God spares those who are being persecuted... It's only so they can continue to worship and to witness, to lay it all on the line for what really matters. Like Paul, to be able to look and say at the end of his life, as he neared death, that he was poured out like a drink offering. I love that. Just exhausted in the service of God, willing to endure whatever came his way. And if God gave him another ounce of breath, another sunset, another sunrise. He was going to use it for what really mattered. And may that be our hearts. May that be our mission. May that be the orientation of our souls. We're still so comfortable. We still got so much that goes so well for us who follow Jesus here in the United States of America. And thank God for that. I don't pretend to want to be in the situation of Christians in Afghanistan. I don't ever, ever, ever want to be there. But should that become our lot here, or maybe some of us move somewhere, and that becomes your lot in this life, I pray God prepares us. I pray God gives us faith. I pray God gives us strength. And I pray that he gives us a heavenly orientation because we won't regret it. We won't. When we stand before him on that final day, we won't regret it. Let's pray.